Amen. Hey, uh, before we pray and get into our passage, uh, I want to do maybe a quick little preface uh, and just give a, a kind of a warning, all right? So if you've read through Judges, you might know that the, the story that we're getting into tonight is a little bit strange. Um, and just to be very blunt and honest with you guys, it, it's a pretty graphic story. Uh, so if you have uh, kids, hopefully you got an email this week where we just mentioned, um, just for you guys to know that this is coming, that this story is coming. But I also just wanted to say... Um, uh, just to be honest, for some of you, if you have any uh, past or history with abuse or anything like that, um, that's kind of the center point of this story. And so I just don't want you to be surprised as we get into that. I want you to know um, up front that we are going to hit some of this. Um, and, and so I just want to give you the freedom. I'm going to pray here in a second. And then at any point throughout this sermon, if you ever feel the need just to stand up, step outside or do something, you have full freedom to do that. Um, and, and so th- there's no judgment or shame or anything, if that's what you need to do tonight. Uh, however, um, in studying for this and in praying, I do think that God has a really encouraging and kind of hope-filled word for us tonight. It's just going to get a little dark before we can see that, all right? So I just want to give you that warning. I'm going to pray that this would be an encouraging and hope-filled time, and then we'll get into Judges chapter 19. So pray with me. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, um, God, that you are just so good And God, we thank you that the Bible is real and honest uh, and doesn't hide from some of the the heinous and horrible things in our world. Um, God, we pray that this would not be a discouraging um, evening or a few moments, but God, that you would shine through this. Well, even while we see humans' wickedness, we can see your glory and goodness in this. So God, I pray that you would give us really sharp minds to, to see and understand what we're supposed to see and understand would you give us soft hearts? Um, God, break down any callousness or pride. Would we be heartbroken at this story? Um, but give us hearts of worship that at the end of this, we would see your beauty, Jesus, in this, that we would love you and others in greater ways. So we need you to do this. Protect me and the words that I say. Protect us from believing anything false. And would we trust you more after this time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the most horrific, vile, tragic, heartbreaking, and wicked stories in all the Bible. Unfortunately, that would be my one-sentence summary for the story that we're going to read tonight in Judges 19 through 21. Uh, Imagine, you know, when we read the Bible, we can sometimes think that it's this beautiful, nice, easy, great love story. And imagine you were uh, going to watch a movie where you thought it was a rom-com or some love story, but as it unfolds, you don't find happily ever after, but you find destruction and abuse and murder. That's the book of Judges. Or maybe if you've ever, uh, when you watch a TV show or maybe you're watching a movie um, and, and there's some sort of like gory scene that comes on, you know, maybe it's like a big war scene and you see people dying or you see blood or anything and you kind of get that like queasy feeling in your gut a little bit. Like it makes you a little bit uneasy and you kind of wince at it. Uh, my wife does this all the time. If there's any blood or we'll watch like a medical show and if there's like a surgery and they cut into a body or something, she just like has to look away because it's just kind of too much, right? Well, that's the story in Judges 19, 19 through 21. It's a story where we should be kind of grossed out by it. You know, I, I was in a seminary class a few years ago um, and we were going through Old Testament narratives 
and we got to Judges, and the assignment was to read the last half of Judges before we came to class. And so we come to class one day, uh, and, and a woman right away raised her hand and said, said to the professor, she said, you know, ju- I just have to be honest with you. Uh, as I was reading that final story, I literally could not finish it. Uh, she said, I started crying and was so repulsed that I literally had to close the Bible and put it away because I could not read it. And without skipping a beat, my professor very matter-of-factly um, just simply said, that is the exact purpose of Judges 19 through 21. He said that the author of Judges intends for us, the people of God, to be so repulsed by this story that we could hardly finish it without wincing or getting a queasy feeling in our gut. You know, the author of Judges is ending the book this way to show that in Israel, everything has gone wrong. Right? We've been seeing these stories of compromise and seeing this kind of downward spiral, and it ends on a note, not happily ever after, but everything has gone wrong. And so that's where we'll end Judges. Uh, we're going to be shown the outcome of uh, a people that do what is right in their own eyes. Uh, now, before we get there, I want to just kind of prove that point, that that's what's going on here. Uh, by reminding you of the structure of Judges. Um, So if you're new, this is, like Jared said, this is our last uh, week in this. Um, But we've said a number of times in this series that Judges is not written chronologically, but thematically. Or you could even say theologically. So um, Judges is not chronological, which is like an ordered series of events, right? And I think when we come to the Bible, we think, okay, well, if I'm reading a narrative, everything just is chronological. So we read this story, then this happened, then this happened. Um, But Judges isn't primarily written chronologically. Some of it, for sure, but not primarily. Primarily, Judges is written thematically or with a theme in mind. It's trying to drive home a theological point. So, after 10 weeks, what's the theme of Judges? Well, simply, I would say, Judges is teaching us that compromise leads to demise. That compromise leads to demise. That that is ultimately why Judges is in the Bible. Like, the point of Judges is to prove to the people of God that if we compromise, this is where it will go. That the little compromises will end up leading to demise. When we don't do what God calls us to, but we decide to do what's right in our eyes. When we compromise on things that we believe God is telling us to do, but we don't let him govern, but we govern ourselves, this is where we finish. In week one, we actually had a whole sermon on that. You guys remember that chapter one of Judges was a warning on compromise. God saying, do not compromise or you will be just like all the nations around you. Now, after a slow decline of 18 other chapters, we get to the end, and we see that they compromised, and therefore we see their demise. The book is written to show us compromise leads to demise, and I think that is an important word for us today, because so often we, as the people of God, can make ourselves believe that little spiritual compromises are meaningless Right? Like, who cares if I'm just off a little bit? I know God said this, but I, I kind of feel like maybe I should go this way. These little compromises and judges is teaching us little compromises leads to a big demise of your faith and of the people of God. So with all that being said, 
Let's finish Judges by looking at the demise of the people of God. If you've got a Bible, um, we'll be in Judges 19 through 21. Um, the story is pretty long, and so I'm not going to actually read a lot of it, but I'm just going to kind of share the story with you. We'll jump into different parts of it. Um, but we're going to do this in three movements, all right? So we'll see the story unfold in kind of three ways. Uh, first, we'll see the problem in Israel. Second, we'll see the plight of Israel. And lastly, we'll see the promise for Israel. The problem in Israel, the plight of Israel, and the promise for Israel. So first, before we get to the heart of the story, we need to remind ourselves of the problem in Israel. This is the problem that's been unfolding for the last nine weeks for us. Um, but what's really nice is that the problem becomes really obvious when you read the story. Okay, Because what happens is there's the same phrase in the very first verse of our story and at the very last verse of our story. So let me show you. Judges uh, 19, verse 1. We see this little phrase at the beginning. It says, In those days when there was no king in Israel. That's the third time, actually, that that phrase has happened in just the last three chapters. So what Judges is building to is that the main problem that we're seeing is that there's no king in Israel. This is the kind of setting the stage for our story. Whatever's about to happen is because there's no good, godly, true king. And it's not just the beginning. If you actually take your Bible, flip a couple chapters to the last verse in Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. So that was the first verse of our story. Here's the last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And now he adds on what happens when that's true. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So for readers, that's actually really nice, right? We've got bookends on our story. We know that everything that we're about to hear is because there's no king in Israel and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not following God as king. They don't have a good king leading them. And so the people do whatever they think they should do. This means that they're not looking to God for truth, wisdom, leadership, guidance, but they have turned in on themselves, and they're looking to themselves to govern. Uh, Dale Davis had a commentary on judges that we've been using, and he says this. He said, the problem is not so much with what each man was doing, although I would argue we're going to see that that is a problem. All right, so that is one of the problems, but he says, uh, with the standard that governed him in his own eyes. So what he's saying there is that he's saying the, pro the actual action, the sinful actions, what they were doing is not the core problem. The core problem is that is a consequence of them leading themselves. The main problem is that God's not governing them. They're governing themselves. They're doing whatever they think is right. And therefore we see a horribly sinful story like 19 through 21. And as we've read Judges, this is the climax, but haven't we seen that slowly unfolding this whole time? Right? God is calling them to act, and, and consistently they're doing other things. Or even take it out of um, the Bible context. Just think, around our world historically, how has it gone for nations and leaders who don't look to God as king, but think that they can rule themselves? Think of every big, massive empire around the world historically. All of them have eventually imploded upon themselves, right? Like that's why we don't have the same global powers today as we had 
200 or 400 years ago or 4,000 years ago because nations that look to glorify themselves and do whatever they think is right eventually implodes and that is what we're seeing in Israel. So if that's kind of the core foundational problem, one more question we could ask is, uh, what is that kind of self-governing removal of God um, problem, what does that lead to practically? What is the practical problem in Israel because of this? But here's my understanding of, I think, that the problem going on in Israel. They were called to be a holy people submitted to God, but they have become a worldly people submitted to themselves. Right? Or you could say it even more clearly, they are no longer holy but worldly. Right? When they govern themselves and remove God, they are not holy, they are now worldly. And that word holy, again, if you remember back to week one, that was God's call for them. He said, what I want you to do is enter into this land and be holy. Right now, when we think holy, we might think like heavens or angels or maybe someone who's holier than thou. But, but the core is just to be holy is to be set apart. Okay, so you're set apart from something or you're set apart for something. And repeatedly throughout the Bible, God calls his people to be holy to be set apart. In Leviticus, God had called Israel to be holy for he is holy. So he's saying, you're holy because you're like me. Or in Exodus, he called Israel a holy nation. The whole nation of Israel was to be set apart. They were to be a people set apart from the world so that they could be a light to the world. Right? Like the reason God said to set them apart, to be in this land and drive everybody out was so that they could be a set apart people to show the whole world, all the nations, who God actually is. That was the goal of the people of God. And if, if I can step a little bit outside of the judge's context and just press this in for us, I want you to think about this. Did you know that that is your purpose too? Like your God-given purpose in life is to be holy. Like the purpose of being a member of the church is to be a member of a holy people. And I think for us, we struggle so much with this because um, we've talked about, we often want to not seem too like morally elite or, or we don't want to seem holier than thou or, or we just really want to be culturally relevant and want to fit in with friends and neighbors and coworkers. And so what we tend to do is compromise on holiness so that we can more be like the world. And God is saying through the whole book of Judges, your whole purpose is to be holy. Like, that's why God saved you, is to set you apart. Not to make you more like the world, but to actually make you less like the world. And it's not only your purpose, but it's actually your destiny. Like, think about this. You are saved. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are saved. You're on this path of holiness or sanctification. And what happens when Jesus comes back? We are made fully new and completely holy. So that's your future. That's the path you're on. Like everything driving you should be towards holiness because God has called you to be holy. And if we have any shot as a church to reach the world around us, it is not when we look like them. It's when we're actually set apart from them. Because when we are holy, we can be a light to the nations. Israel has compromised on their holiness. And often the problem for us has been the problem in Israel. They took their cues not from God, but the world. They took their rhythms and the way of doing life not from God, 
but the world. They defined life and society and relationships not according to God, but according to the world. The problem in Israel is they are not holy anymore. They are worldly. Because compromise in holiness leads to the demise of holiness. So, that is our backdrop. That's the setting for what we're about to read. All right, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at the plight of Israel, primarily in chapter 19. Um, the word plight, if that's new to you, just means difficulty or kind of the trouble or the unfortunate situation of them. There might have been a better way for me to name this title. I needed three Ps, so I chose plight. So if you don't know that word, you're welcome. Now you know a new word, the plight of Israel. So uh, let's look at this story. We're going to see just the destruction and the demise of what happens in Israel. Again, you can kind of follow along if you want, or you can just listen. I'll jump in at certain points. But here's what's going on in Israel. Uh, the story begins reminding us that when there was no king in Israel, there was a man, uh, a Levite man, meaning just a man from the tribe of Levi. And this Levite, it says, has a concubine. And if you've read the Bible before, maybe you've uh, heard of that word concubine. Um, but a concubine is essentially kind of like a wife, uh, but not really. Okay, so, so men in Israel, they would often take um, multiple wives, um, but then they would also have what is called concubines. And you could think of a concubine as like a second-tier uh, wife, uh, but hardly even a wife. So honestly, for, for concubines, they are mostly used for sex and status. Right? So the, the more wives and concubines especially that a man would have, it would, it would be a sign of power, wealth, or that he would have like a large dominion because he was able to have all these concubines. And the concubines were not treated as valuable or as uh, even a wife who is not treated in that time um, as they should be. But this is even lower. Uh, and for the concubine, they were essentially just possessions to use when the man wanted sex. So it's a second-tier wife for sex in status. So already in the first verse, we're seeing just moral misconduct. Because in no way, one of the things we have to remind ourselves as we hear this story is we're going to read things, and we often think if something's in the Bible, that must mean then that God condones it or affirms it. But we got to be good readers here. So it says that he has a concubine, but in fact, God has already defined marriage for Israel. Right, if you guys remember, Genesis, nobody else defined marriage. God defined marriage in Genesis 2. He said that marriage is one man and one woman, uh, not one superior than the other, but they are in a oneness type relationship of love and purity. Yet all throughout the Old Testament, we see these men in Israel had concubines. And do you know why? Not because God told them to, but because that was the culturally accepted practice of the day. They were going on a redefinition of marriage based off cultural compromise and common day sensibilities. Does that sound familiar at all? Uh, let me just say a point on this. You know, we think today culturally that we're so much more enlightened and so we understand marriage in a new way. That's bogus. People were redefining marriage at the very beginning. Like us actually trying to redefine marriage as a culture. We're just falling in line with every culture for thousands of years. That's not new. God has created marriage, and the people of God are always tempted to compromise because of the common day sensibilities of the culture around them. And we are not immune from that, right? God has defined marriage, and they have compromised, and we see that 
right away. That's not for this sermon. Uh, so, but just know that that's just a part of what the people of God consistently face. And that's what the Levite has done. He has got a concubine. It goes on to say that that concubine has now been unfaithful to him, which means that she probably slept with another man, um, which again, for a wife, that's bad. For a concubine who's not seen to have any value, this could, she could be killed for this. There's utter shame on her family for this. And so she goes back to her family's house um, and, and decides to stay there for a while. So he sinned, she sinned, we're two verses in, and it's literally miserable. Like everything that's going on right now is not what God has called them to. We'll go quicker. All right, so uh, next, the Levite decides after four months of her being gone, um, he decides, okay, I want to go get her back. So he goes to her father's house, stays there for a little bit, and then decides we're going to go back to our home. So on the way back, they, it's getting to be nighttime, and so they need to find a place to stay. So they go into, uh, close to the city, um, and so they could stay there, but the problem is that city is filled not with Israelites but foreigners. So the guy says, there's no way that I'm staying in that place. They won't be hospitable, they won't be loving, and it could be dangerous because they are foreigners. So he says, we're going to keep going until we get to a town called Gibeah, which is in the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite town. Conceivably, that would be the better move. So they get to Gibeah, and a man offers him a place to stay. But what's interesting in verse 20 is this guy tells them, he says, hey, come inside, make sure you do not stay outside in the public space. Which should make you just ask, this is Israel, right? A holy people. Why would it be dangerous for an Israelite in the public space? Why would that be a bad thing? Well, unfortunately, we soon find out. Let me read to you uh, chapter 19, verse 22, what happens next. As they were making their hearts merry, behold... The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house so that we may know him. If you're new to the Bible, that phrase, know him, um, is essentially they're saying, Send the men out so we can rape him. The man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Okay, so the first few verses, it's scary. It's kind of weird. But it seems like the, the man who's letting them stay there is going to be courageous. And he's fighting for this. Do not sleep with him. He says, do not abuse this man. Read the next verse. The guy goes on. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. And do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, this is the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her, that is to sleep with her, and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. Let me reiterate what I said at the beginning. This is one of the most horrific and heartbreaking stories in the Bible. And if that, even just hearing that, makes you feel that queasy, uneasy feeling, let me just say again, this is not to say that God condones this. In fact, that, those verses, this story is in the Bible so that we can know that God hates what happened here. He's nowhere in this story. This is happening because people are doing what they want to do, and God is teaching us that he hates this. 
See, the men in Israelite, they're so wicked that they see a visitor come into their town and they say, we must abuse him. We need to sleep with him. And the guys in the story, instead of protecting the women in their house, say, in order to protect myself, let me send the women out. The Levite actually seizes the concubine and forces her to go out knowing what's about to happen to her. On every level of this story, there should be a righteous anger that builds in us. Yet the story continues. In the morning, the guy opens the door to find his concubine lying at the door dead. Because of the abuse all night, she eventually dies at these guys' hands. The Levite simply opens the door and like an animal just yells at her and says, Hey, get up. We got to go. And when she doesn't respond and he notices that she has passed, he picks her up, the body, puts her on a donkey, takes her home, and he cuts her body into 12 pieces, sending one piece to each of the tribes in Israel to show them what just happened. Here's how chapter 19 ends in verse 30. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Israel is not a holy people. They are not separated from the world and a light to the world. They are just as wicked as anyone else in the world. Uh, in fact, if you have uh, read through the whole Bible, or maybe in our Bible reading plan, if you started strong with us in uh, January, you maybe remember a story in Genesis 19. Okay, if this maybe triggers something in you, uh, of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you guys heard of this? In Genesis 19, there is this, these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and there is a story in there that is almost identical to this. Um, almost to a T. And the point of that story about Sodom was to show the vileness and the wickedness of the nations around Abraham. God is showing how, um, how evil this is. In fact, the rest of the Bible, when it mentions Sodom, it mentions that them as one of the most um, repulsive and morally repugnant people in the world. The author of Judges writes his story in the similar way to show us that now the, the sinfulness, the wickedness that God hates is not simply out there, but it's in here. It is actually in the people of God. They are no longer holy from the nations. They are wicked like the wickedest of nations. See, when the people of God govern themselves, when they do what is right in their own eyes, they become as sinful as anyone this story reveals the demise of Israel. Uh, we won't get into it, but in chapter 20, um, because of what happens, the, the Israel actually forms this alliance against Benjamin, uh, the tribe of Benjamin where Gibeah is, and they have this full-out civil war where they almost wipe out Benjamin. And then in 21, there's this weird kind of change of heart, and they decide here to basically help Benjamin out now that we've almost killed them off. We're going to kidnap a bunch of women and force them to now go with these Benjaminite men so that they can repopulate their tribe. It's just wicked. From beginning to end, it's disgusting and demeaning. Israel's early compromise. When we read in chapter 1, these little compromises they made has led to a complete moral demise. So, for us, uh, I think it's fair for us just to ask the question, what do we do with this? We see the, the plight of Israel, the, the disgusting nature of the sin that's going on there. What is our takeaway? I think one clear observation that we can make for ourselves from the story. 
We cannot be under the assumption that left to ourselves, we will simply be better than the people of the past. It's nothing more than self-honoring pride to say that the cultural, spiritual, and moral wickedness would never come from us. And I know for a lot of us, we may have the temptation to read this story and think that is wicked, that is gross, that is a time before us, but I would never. I would never sin in such ways. I would never let my little compromises lead to such moral demise. That's pride. I mean, there's nothing else to it. God teaches from beginning to end of the Bible that if a people are left to themselves and their own sin, this is the result. It may look different, but it's the same end of moral demise. And I can say that because literally throughout all of the Bible, which spans people groups, which spans time periods, which spans thousands of years, the same end is for every person that does not live under God's rule. In fact, uh, in, on Friday in our reading plan, we read the first three chapters of Romans. Uh, the first three chapters of Romans is this explanation that it doesn't matter if you were an Israelite or if you're of the nations like us. Right? It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a natural rule follower, follower or rebellious. It doesn't matter any distinction you want to make. Paul says in Romans that the, where we're going is that we have been born into sin and we continue to sin and we let sin rule us. That is who we are as a people. Now, you might think, okay, I read this story. I read chapter 19. I would never abuse a woman. Maybe not physically. Uh, but if you've ever watched pornography, you have taken a person, you have dehumanized them for your satisfaction and pleasure. You have stripped the imago day out of that person for yourself. Uh, if you might think, well, I would never sacrifice a woman or someone to protect myself. Well, maybe not as overtly as in this story, but how many times have you made comments or you, have you done things that maybe have sacrificed the well-being of another so that your reputation can be upheld? How many times have you jockeyed in a situation to make sure people see you in the right light, knowing just totally that you've sacrificed somebody else's reputation or what they will face? You might think, well, I would never be a part of a civil war with the people of God. Well, maybe not with spears and guns, but how, is it, or how easy is it for you to gossip about another member of the blood-bought bride of Christ. That person that you're gossiping about is someone that Christ shed his blood for, and it's so easy for us to talk negatively about them. Or how easy, how easy is it for us to slander a friend to another friend or a family member or to post divisive comments or trying to make other Christians look foolish? It's no different than what's going on here. You might think that we don't always operate out of what is right in our own eyes Again, maybe not as consciously as this story, but how often do you fight the truths of Scripture um, because, frankly, they're just a little hard to follow? Right? Or how many times when you make decisions do you consult with the Lord in prayer or do you just make up your mind? How many times do you crave control in your life and when you lose it, you lose your mind? How often do you say, well, I don't think God would be like this or I don't think it's reasonable that I should have to do this. That is you saying what's right in my own eyes is what is right. We cannot think that we are morally superior to a wicked people. If we are left to govern ourselves with the sin in ourselves, we will continue in our demise. Friends, if we're left to ourselves, this is our story. Sinful, wicked, may look different, may have different levels of sin, but that is who 
we are without a king. So we see the problem in Israel. The problem is their worldliness, not their holiness. The plight of Israel is that that worldliness has led to a complete societal moral demise. So what's the hope? Right? What's the hope for the people of Israel? What's the hope for us, a sinful people, when we're left to ourselves? For a, a sinful, unfaithful people, where is the promise for Israel? Well, if you flip over, you don't have to do this now, but if you were to flip from Judges to the next book in the Bible, um, it's this short little story called Ruth. And in Ruth, it begins by saying that that story was actually in the time period of the Judges. So it's not a part of Judges, but the whole story actually fits into the time period of the Judges. So we have the Judges, and then Ruth is all kind of one time period. Now at the end of the short story of Ruth, um, there's this little genealogy. Now I know for us, we skip over genealogies. We hate them because they are names we can't pronounce, and they're weird and, and meaningless, we think. But this little genealogy is massively important for the people of God in, in the time of the judges. I mean, remember the frame. There's no king in Israel. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Well, at the end of Ruth, there's a genealogy that ends with the name David. And David would become a king in Israel. And God then made a promise to David while he was king that he would have a son, that there would be another king from David's line that would rule forever. And he said this would be the true king, the good king, the righteous king, and not only that, an eternal king, that the people of God need a king. He is about to provide one through the line of David. The people needed a king to save them from themselves, to be holy for them, to not do what is right in his eyes, but to do what is right in God's eyes. And God promised David, I will send a son, a boy, and he will become the king for my people. In fact, years later, the prophet Isaiah, uh, God makes a, a prophecy about this king to his people again. Uh, and I'm going to read this. And I want you just to imagine, uh, if you're longing for a king, just hear the description of the king. Isaiah 9 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. No other mere man, no politician, the government will rest on this king's shoulder, and this king shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is who the king will be. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Peace will never end in his government. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness or justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God is promising for his people that the king they need will come. The king that will rule the nations with righteousness and peace is coming. A king that will reside over a glorious kingdom forever. A king that would save his people and make them holy. And the benefit for us is that we are not still looking forward to a king, but in just a few weeks, we'll enter into the season of Advent, which is us remembering the coming of the king. That God sent his very own son, Jesus Christ, to be the king for his people. And Providence, hear this. Jesus is not a king. He's not one of the kings. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the son that was born to rule the nations. He is the king that would reside over God's kingdom. And he is the king who came not to be served, but to serve. 
He is the king who is enthroned not by seizing power, but by giving up power. He is the king who wore not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He is the king who didn't enter into his temple gloriously, but entered through death on a cross. He is the king who, although he was holy, was treated as unholy. He is the king who laid down his life for his people. And he is the king who conquered death three days later. He is the king who on that Sunday rose from the grave. He is the king who is alive and ruling today. He is the king who is building an everlasting kingdom. He is the king who rules with peace and justice. He is the king who hates the wickedness of the world. He is the king who sees our brokenness, our hurt, and he will fix it. He is the king who comforts us in our darkest times. He is the king who does not look away from injustice, but actually provides justice. He is the king who who is ridding the world of wickedness and sin. He is the king who will one day welcome you into his glorious kingdom. Jesus is the king that we give our lives to. He is the king that we surrender to. He is the king who has saved us by faith in him alone. Jesus is the king who makes you holy. And Jesus is the king who ushers you into the presence of God forevermore. Providence, Jesus is our king. Let, let's just pray. Jesus, uh, you are so, so good. God, would you help us tonight to feel the weight of our sin, but see the beauty and the power of you, King Jesus. Your kingdom uh, is not immoral. Your kingdom will never fade. Your kingdom is ruled by peace and justice and righteousness. Of your government and your kingdom, there will be no end of peace, no chaos, no anxiety, no fear, no sin, just peace and justice and righteousness forevermore. God, you will rid the world of evil and wickedness. You do not put up with sin. You will crush it one day. You are the king that will kill sin forever. God, we just pray um, for, for all of us in the room, would we humbly step forward? Uh, would we come to you not uh, thinking that we are better than those in the past, thinking that um, we have somehow moved on from those in the past, but that we are sinful and wicked? And God, would you lead us to faith in you, to glorious surrender and allegiance to the King of Kings, who is greater than all? God, would you help us in this moment? Any cold heart or apathetic heart, would you wake up? Anybody who's wrestling with sin that they've done or sin that has been done from them, would you speak to them now that you see that, that you can forgive that, that you can wipe away shame and guilt forevermore? God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.